What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chat. This is episode number 14. My name is Zach, and joining me, as always, is Ben Fisher. What's up, Ben? Not much, man. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, remember how a few episodes ago I said I was excited for Lotus Cobra to be reprinted? Yeah, how'd that go? I take it back. Just ban it, ban Uro, ban Nissa. Wait, Nissa's gone. Uh, ban every card that isn't red, uh, colorless, black. White's fine, I guess, but blue and green, I'm done with it. Get it out of here. But those are my favorite colors. Yeah, yeah, I love I love it too, but I think we need a hard reset on standard. But forget this. Let's talk about limited. Yeah, that's what we're here to do. Okay. Before we get into our main topic, gotta plug the sponsor. We gotta get used to this. MTG Arena Zone is your top destination for all Magic the Gathering Arena articles, community, decks, news, and more. They have plenty of content for constructed and limited players alike, from top archetypes to theory articles and even more. And you know, they're building out a podcast infrastructure as well. And here we are supporting them and they're supporting us. It's a great place to be. Go check them out if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I, I'm still, it's still a shock to us that we are, you know, taking all these all new, all new listeners. Uh, hello, everyone that's coming over from Arena Zone. Uh, we're happy to have you here. And uh, we thank you for sticking around and listening to two goons ramble about a trading card game that we love. Yeah, for sure. Speaking about rambling about a trading card game that we both love, our main topic this week is basically, well, we've had some time to digest the new format in Zendikar Rising, so we're covering our first impressions, we're going to talk about some revised thoughts we've had on the format since our format breakdown last week, and uh, just a little bit about what our experience with the format has been. We're also going to be sniping a few questions from our Discord. You are super welcome to join that over there. The the community there has been growing pretty steadily. We have a little over two dozen people there, I think now, and uh, more and more are joining every day. So get over there while the getting's good, as they say. Uh, it's completely <laughs> free. the The link for that is in the show description as well as on our Twitter account at DraftChaffPod. But thanks to everybody over there who's been conversing every day and just having a good time discussing the new format. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been so impressed with a lot of the content and and things people have been doing. We've had people organizing our own little draft leagues or testing decks against each other. We've been discussing the potential of trying out Spell Table to play EDH with each other. I'm really, really excited about where this community is going to go. Yeah, it sounds super fun. With uh, I haven't actually gotten into any of the test groups yet, but but testing out your decks before you're actually playing in the leagues is really, really cool idea. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a Patreon. If that's your thing, you feel like supporting the show, giving back to us, that's the place to do it. Patreon.com forward slash draft pod. All of that is going back into the community somehow. So we're going to be doing some giveaways, things of that nature. We did an episode on cubes. We're going to be trying to build a draft chaff only cube and maybe we'll be able to give away a copy of the cube to somebody at some point mm-hmm. down the line. That would be super sweet. But if you want to give back to the show, that's the place to do it. Check that out at Patreon.com slash draft chaff pod. All right. Hey, hear me out. Yeah. What's up? Uh- because it's all draft chaff, we could probably get some foils, right? Let's give away a foil copy of the cube. How okay. sweet would that be? Yeah, I'm, I'm with it. All right. So anyway, let's get into a crack a draft type thing for this week. So this is actually from a draft I was doing a little while ago. It was on Arena, and it was a pretty sweet one. This is actually going to be a pack one, pick five. Starting off with Kazandu Mammoth. This thing has one green green for a 3-3 three, three elephant. It has landfall. Whenever a land ETVs, it gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. And as you may know, this is a modal DFC. So on the other side, it is a green land. It taps for green and it is end of the battlefield tapped. Good card, right? Yeah, absolutely. That effect, the landfall plus two, plus two thing is on quite a few cards in this format. And there's a reason because Mammoth is a rare. This card is just bonkers as a land and also a three, three for three that just gets bigger every time you play land. It's yeah, it's it's wild. Mm-hmm. This thing's often attacking as a 5-5. It's still decent on blocks. 3 out of 3-3, we'll, we'll sit around and clog up the board pretty well. So that was my pack one pick one. Pack two, I took a Balaged Recovery. That's two and a green for a sorcery. Return target card from your graveyard to your hand. It's a nice little regrowth effect. It's a little overcosted, but of course, that's because it's a modal DLC. DLC? DFC? That modal DFC. So again, on the other side, it's a land. Taps for green. Enters the battlefield. Tapped. Yeah. Good card. It does the thing. It's a modal DFC. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk later on about how great these DFCs are and, you know, about how they've been kind of all over the place in people's pick orders recently. Next up, we actually have a single sided card, the first one. For my pick three, I took Vastwood Surge. This is three and a green for a sorcery. It is kicker four, so you can pay an additional four as you cast it, and you search your library for up to two basic land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, shuffle your library, and if it was kicked, you put two 1 1 counters on each creature you control. So as I was drafting this, I was kind of thinking, all right, clearly I want to be doing some kind of green landfall thing. Kazandu Mammoth, if I have that on the battlefield as I Vastwood Surge, 
I mean, this thing is going to get pumped twice. So this is up to a 7-7 now. That's awesome. And then if I manage to kick this, well, then my whole board is huge and it triggers all my other landfall creatures. So this is looking like a nice little green landfall deck so far. Yep. Next up, actually, my bad. This was the, a pick four. Next up is the, the pick that we're you know, going to start looking into. I was faced with an interesting pack. There was a lot of other stuff. I was looking to cut green. And the card that first caught my attention was Kazandu Stomper. This is five and a green for a 6-5 beast. It has trample. And when it enters the battlefield, return up the two lands you control to your owner's hand. So I was thinking, all right, this clearly fits here as the top end. I'm able to return uh, the Kazandu Mammoth or Balagator covered in my hand if I play them as lands. Or I, I can do other stuff. I can return stuff. I can trigger landfall again for the Kazandu Mammoth. It seems like the perfect card for this deck. Now, uh, there were some other random blue little creatures and, and uh, white little creatures, warriors, rogues, things I wasn't really interested in. The card that I'm interested in, in weighing this against, and I'm interested to hear your opinion on, Zach, is Kazul's Fury. This was left in the pack. This is two and a red for an instant as an additional cost to cast a spell, sack a creature, and it deals damage to the sacked creature's power to any target. So this is a fling effect, and of course, it's on a modal DFC. So on the other side, you have a tapped land, taps for red. So in my head, I'm thinking, do I take the Kazandu Stomper, which synergizes really well with the things I have, or do I start to move into a second color red with a high-powered DFC, which also kind of synergizes pretty well with what I have? I could probably pick up more Stompers, but will I be able to pick up more DFCs? Is this rated above it? There were some other things in the pack, like broken wings and some little creatures. But uh, as far as the cards I was interested in, it was between Fury and the Stomper. What do you think? Yeah, so hmm. Stomper is high up there in my pick order. I think it's one of the better green cards in the format. Maybe not, you know, top one or two commons, but it's one of the better green cards you can pick up at common. The ability to bounce two lands, get, you know, basically two rebuys on all your landfall triggers, also pick up some of those modal DFCs. And at this point, you already have two good ones that you would kind of not want to play as lands early on. They're three drops, so you tend to not want to play them as lands. So I'm thinking Stomper looks pretty good here. That said, Kazul's Fury is really good. It's a fling effect. It's a modal DFC itself. And the Stompers, I've noticed, tend to go kind of late, uh, later than I would expect them to anyway. And they're commons, mm -hmm. so they get open relatively frequently. Kazul's Fury is an uncommon. It's the modal DFC. I'm probably just jamming the Fury and hoping to pick up a Stomper later. But you definitely do want a Stomper in pretty much every green deck. Yeah, I agree. I ended up taking the Stomper here, uh, but it was very close. Uh, I, I thought about taking the Fury, but I decided to just stick to a color and, and try to cut off green just to see what would happen. Yeah. This is still pretty early in the format. That's that's true. And I, I think there's something to be said for just cutting the color in one direction. If you're not passing any good green cards, there's a solid chance you're getting hooked up in your second pack with pretty much all the green and sticking to one color keeps you open longer term. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think the color differentials in this game, uh, sorry, in this format are a bit different than what we're used to. Signals mm -hmm. are a bit are a bit wacky. So staying open in a color, I think, actually is kind of maybe not best thing to do, or at least it has diminishing returns far faster, I think, than other formats do. But we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah. So actually, I did, uh, I, like I said, took the Stomper, ended up picking two more Stompers up later, and I wound up in a very sweet black-green counters DFC deck. Uh, and I'm actually splashing for red after all, uh, because I picked up in pack three, I already had 23 playables, so I was like, all right, let's see what I can mess around and do. I picked up a Phylath World Sculptor, that's the uh, Avenger of Zendikar-esque legend, and I picked up a Zagris, Thief of Heartbeats, that's the Black Red Party legend. So I couldn't stop myself from splashing a few six drops. I mean, I already had the Vastwood Surge to tutor, and I mean, I, I picked up a Stormwork Pack Beast that lets me kind of free play them if I get up to seven lands, so... This wound up being a very sweet deck. Uh, I'm currently 2-0 with it, and I'll probably keep playing it as soon as we're done recording. Sweet. Yeah, let me know how the rest of that goes. We did get to see the, the final build there in our uh, Dex channel over in the Discord. So mm -hmm. another Yeah, if you're interested in seeing uh, how it wound up, definitely go over to the Discord and check it out. We have channels for Dex and also Trophy Dex. So if you're interested in seeing what's what and also what's good, uh, check it out. So actually, uh, I can kick it right off with our Teferi and Tybalt this week because <laughs> my, my Tybalt was that in one of my games, as I was playing this, I, I guess I lied a little bit. I'm technically two and one because one of my games, my third game I tried playing, Arena crashed and uh, my PC froze. I had to restart it. 
by the time I got back in, I had timed out. I, I had that thing where you go on arena and it says like validating files. There was an error in your last match, something like that. So uh, I got an auto loss, which felt very bad when I had a deck that was this fun to play. Yeah, hopefully that doesn't come to bite you when you're in like, you know, you're six and two and you really need that extra win back. <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely my, my low point of the week. Um, but my high point of the week, um, it's a fairy. I've been playing a lot of Among Us. I know a lot of Magic's getting on there. LSV is the, the Among Us spokesperson of the He's Magic community. He's like the poster community. child for that game. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of him and Gabby and the other, uh, like BK and all them streaming it. And it's a lot of fun. But I've also been playing with my friends too. And honestly, it's been keeping me sane. Uh, I haven't seen some of these people in, in months. And the idea that I can get on there, play a fun social game that is lighthearted, that doesn't require too much brain power, and just sit back and relax and play some fun games, that's a good time for me. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I haven't actually had the the pleasure or luxury of playing among us just yet but i have been very much enjoying a lot of the uh streams and stuff such that i've been mm -hmm. catching well i'll just invite you to our next round how about that sounds good to me <laughs> for me um the teferi honestly this week for me is just our discord has been growing our community here has been growing the the draft chaff community uh is getting bigger thanks in no small part to the uh mtg arena zone partnership there but we've been having some great discussions over there and it's kind of just uh, a dream come true to see us being able to build kind of this community with awesome people uh and mm -hmm. just chat with all these people i never thought i'd ever have interacted with before you know what this actually this makes me think wasn't our goal to help make people better at limited we said something about that somewhere, yeah. Yeah, so I think now that we've we've kind of started this like snowball effect, we've definitely helped people improve. So we could just quit now, right? Like we're done? Oh, no, I, I'm not <laughs> allowing you to get out of this that easily. There is a lot more from us to come. Yeah, that's true. We, we have plans. Well, uh, that leads us to my tibble. Unfortunately, and it feels weird to say this because we're on a first impressions episode about this format, but I don't think I've cracked this format yet. And uh, maybe it's not that bad this time around because I don't think almost anybody's cracked this format yet. But mm. I've drafted a few decks that I thought were pretty sweet, some that I thought were terrible, and I'm at a flat 50% win rate right now in events. I've gone three and three in mm. every event I've run. I'm in the middle of one right now at two and or three and two, I think. So maybe I'll have uh, a chance to, to best that. But yeah, say, my, win the next two that'll break your streak yeah exactly my my typical win rate is hovering around 60 61 percent so it kind of feels bad to be at, at, at this low of a win rate for me but hopefully i can jam this one out. i think if i don't get five wins in this one i'm i'm off my what is it now i guess three format infinite cycle so mm -hmm. i have to grind up some gold and get back to it yeah, this is a weird format, uh, which is actually what we're about to start talking about, right? This format is very interesting, and it's pretty different than what we've seen before, mostly, in my opinion, because of the DFCs. Yeah, so speaking of the DFCs, we're going to kind of segue here into our, our main topic today, which is just we're going to chat a little bit about our impressions of the format. So the biggest thing that I've seen people talking about online, like surrounding these modal DFCs, is where do they fit into pick orders? Because a lot of them are cards that you generally wouldn't want to play in your main deck or at all but then you see people who are saying you know you look at like lsv and marshall over at lr and they're taking these cards that are virtually unplayable and they're putting them up in the b minus b plus b range right and it's like wait where there's a little bit of cognitive cognitive dissonance there it's like why is this extra land so much better than this card or why is this card being able to be played as a land so much better than the card itself and i think a lot of that has to do with mainly the flexibility. What these cards do is they allow you to play 18, 19, 20 plus sources of mana while only playing maybe 15 lands, 16 lands. What that also means is then you're playing, you know, three, four, five extra spells as well. So you're playing mm -hmm. kind of a deck, you're playing a 40 card deck that has like 27, 28 spells, but also 20 sources of mana. That's wild. That's so powerful. Yeah, it's very unique. We've never seen a magic format like this. The closest thing I can think of this is like cycling lands, because that also messes with your, your deck construction and mana base. But as far as the modal DFCs, I think trying to create a heuristic for them almost kind of misses the point, you know? Yeah. I, I think they're so unique and they're so cool in deck building. You also have to evaluate them on a card-by-card -card basis. I think really that there's never going to be a rule. Like I know that the whole two-thirds idea, maybe that's like the technical mathematical rule for these, but what happens if you have like four Hagramallings? Like, how often are you going to want to play those on turn one as your lands? Like, what exactly. if you'd rather just have those as a spell and you almost never play it as land except in emergencies? Or there's some that 
honestly aren't very great, except in very niche scenarios that you almost always play as lands. So I think you really have to do this on a case-by-case basis. Now, there are ways to evaluate them. Actually, the first thing I want to mention about them that I think is really interesting is that they're so fun to splash, right? Like at least the single colored ones, they kind of splash for themselves in a weird way. For example, if you had like a, I don't know, say a green red deck, and then you happen to pick up a few white uh, MDFCs, you can just toss them in at a relatively low cost. Because Mm -hmm. if you happen to have one in your opening hand before you have like a white source, you just play it as a tapped land. And then that is your white source for the future ones that you draw. It's exactly. really interesting. Yeah, obviously that breaks down a little bit if you only have one of an off color. Like it can't, it can't literally splash itself, but they do help splash each other. And mm-hmm. yeah, you get to cheat in those sources. If you have three modal DFCs, you know, typically for those who, who aren't familiar, the kind of typical heuristic for splashing is that you want, if you have one pip of a splashed color, so you have like a one mana or a, a two mana card, and maybe it's one and a white and you're in a red green deck like Ben was describing. Typically, you want three sources of that off-color mana, so you'd play three planes. If you have three modal DFCs, well, now you don't have to play any planes at all. Your mana base is still perfect, and you're just having these extra spells in your deck that can also be mm-hmm. your, your sources of white mana. Like, that's, yeah. that's so powerful. The worst thing about splashing sometimes, like the reason you, you end up cutting your splash cards, the ones you want to jam in there just because, I don't know, they're fun, like me putting Pylath and Zagras in, uh, is because sometimes you draw them and they're dead, like when you can't cast them. Mm-hmm. Well, then uh, these are lands, and it just so happens that this format cares about lands. It cares about landfall. It cares about returning lands to your hand. Like, <laughs> there's not actually that high a cost. So, I've been seeing a lot of interesting two color decks that almost seem kind of weird. They, they have these random, like, two ofs or three of splashes, but I often think it's right to do so. Yeah, actually, I've been originally when I started seeing deck lists come out for this format, I saw, you know, the first, I think, five or six deck lists I saw were like three, four, or five color decks. I don't think I saw a single two-color deck in like the first five or six deck lists I saw. And yeah. then I was like, wait, what is going on? Did I miss something with this? Because we're supposed to play two colors. This is limited. This is draft. We're supposed to play two-color decks and maybe splash sometimes. In this format, you're kind of not supposed to play two colors. I've seen a couple of monocolored decks, but splashing with these MDFCs are just so easy to get away with. Mm-hmm. It's weird because the fixing actually isn't that great. There's no like cycle of tapped gain lands or something like that. But because these cards, like we said, kind of splash for themselves in multiples, you're almost like drafting a two-color deck with like a, a package of, of DFCs from another color, if it ends up working out that way. Yeah, and actually, there was something that stuck with me that you mentioned in our last episode about the... In, in our last episode, the pack one, pick one, or the cracker draft type thing that we did involved uh, the rare cycle, right? The dual lands that don't enter tapped, but it's a it's a modal DFC and one side taps for one color, the other taps for another color. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that they're kind of dual lands or like they're kind of a two color card. And I was thinking yeah. about it today. I actually think that's the opposite of true. I think they're really just, they're just a single color card that you can play in two or three decks. Because if you take, for instance, I drafted the blue black one today. Mm-hmm. You take the blue black one as a pack one pick one. Well, now I can play blue. I can play black and I can play blue black or I can splash those colors into any other deck. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's an untapped land uh, just all the time, that nothing in this set really cares about basics besides a few cards that go get them. So it really is just kind of like a like a free source of an extra color. Exactly. And it does have me thinking, I wonder, say they, they wanted to debut the modal DFC land idea in a set like, I don't know, Strixhaven or, or M21 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wonder how differently that's going to affect the format, because this is a format, like you already mentioned, that cares about bouncing lands, it cares about lands entering the battlefield. I wonder how drastically different, or if at all, they're going to be in in future sets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think, well, first of all, spoiler I love Zendikar, and I think the DFCs are a perfect uh, blend of flavor and function to keep growing on this plane that we've already been to a few times. Admittedly, last time wasn't people's favorites. This one, I think they hit a home run. I think this is amazing. Maybe next time they'll have lands that have other different abilities based on either side. Or maybe next time we won't have, maybe it'll be like an artifact on one side and a creature on the other. Like they could really go any direction with this. Anyway, uh, something else I wanted to mention about the modal DFCs is, well, if we're talking about on a case-by-case basis, evaluate the DFCs that you have and let that affect how many basics you play. And uh, obviously the rest of your deck construction around that. I think it's important to be able to evaluate these DFCs correctly. And I really liked the way that LSV and Marshall broke this down over at Limited Resources. This was uh, something I'd kind of been bouncing around in my head for a while, but 
really, they put the words to it better than I could. They decided to, to describe it as a spectrum. The better a DFC is on both sides of the spectrum, the, the more extreme the two cases are where you play it early versus late, the better the DFC is. For example, a DFC that is very, very good in the late game uh, and kind of sucks in the early game, but you can play it as a tap land in the early game is good. So an example of that would be the one we talked about already, Kazul's Fury. So fling effects are great in the late game. Your opponent's at four, you have a five power creature. Game over when you top deck it, right? Uh, and that's so much better than top decking a land, which means that this is a great part of your deck. Now, um, consider instead Drari Isle Disruption. It's a sensor one, uh, one of the blue counter target spell unless opponent pays one. That's okay in the late game, but it really is better in the mid game and kind of the early game is where you'd want to cast that or play it. Instead of either having the extreme of play it tap to turn one and not really care because you're not using it for ages anyway, and loving top decking on turn 10, Drari Isle Disruption doesn't really do that very well. You don't want to top deck this in the late game. So you're not really getting that extra value off of having this spell attached to a land. It's almost as if you're top decking a land because what does Drari Isle Disruption do when both players have eight lands, you know? So I, I think this uh, spectrum is good to evaluate these cards on. Think about how good it is on turn zero uh, as a, a tapped land, and then how good it is in the late game as a top deck. Because really, think about it, this is letting us live our dream of turning those late game top deck lands into you know actual spells. Definitely. Yeah, gone are the times of, oh, I really wish this was not a land on turn mm -hmm. 15, right? Your, your lands are spells, your spells are lands, and it's a wild world we live in. I think also just something real quick before we move on to the next subtopic we have here. The way that these fit into deck building itself, I've seen a lot of people talking about them. I mean, you mentioned the two-thirds thing, which is like every MDFC counts as like two-thirds of a land, but I kind of don't think that's fair to say. I think, I think you don't want to, because typically with, say, cycling cards, every, you know, two cycling cards counts as a land and you can drop a basic because you have, you can drop two basics because you have four cycling cards in your deck and you're not really worried about it because you're going to draw into them, is the idea. Mm -hmm. These MDFCs, like you said, for some of them are so powerful, like the mythic cycle, perfect on both ends of that spectrum. They're, they're expensive. They're very, very powerful effects. So they're great in the late game, but they're also land. So they're great in the beginning. They are top picks. And I don't think you want to slot those in as, as you know, when you're in the deck building phase, be like, well, I have two of these myth, you know, whatever, ignore the absurdity of the statement, but I have two of these mythic modal DFCs. Well, I have two of them. So I guess I'm cutting a land. Okay. But uh, how often do you want to play them as lands? How often do you want to keep them? Do you have cards that can bounce your lands? Because if you do, you can get them back later. Like there are all these different things that factor into whether or not you want to be cutting basics for these modal DFCs. And I don't think it's fair to just fit some random number or even a calculated number onto them at this mm -hmm. point in, in the format. I think you need to be judging them on a deck by deck, pick by pick basis and go from there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think our big takeaway will be there's not really a good heuristic for these because that kind of <laughs> defeats the purpose of such cool design. Yeah, so that moves us into our top archetypes of the format. And this is something I briefly hinted at with Ben before we started recording, but I don't actually think this is one of the typical 10 two-color archetype formats. And here's why. Almost every single archetype in this format is a landfall deck or a party deck or a rogues deck or they're all built around these themes. You can't really just jam every two or every, uh, say, green and red card and get a good deck. You kind of it's kind of more synergistic than that. And all of the cards just about all, of, you know, ignoring like the black four, three warrior that has no text. And even that is warrior. So it fits into the party decks like all yeah. of these cards in this format are designed in such a way that they fit into almost any deck as long as you're building the deck in a certain way. So you can pick up, and especially with the way the MDFCs work, splashing is so weird and almost easy without the good fixing. You can kind of just pick up random cards to do whatever you want with. Like, for instance, I was playing against a blue-black player the other day. Okay, they're blue-black. They're playing rogues, right? Like, you just see an island, you see a swamp, you expect they're on rogues, they're playing their two-drop that can't be blocked, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this, this it makes sense in my limited program brain. Well, guess what? They were on a party deck. Uh-huh. They were playing blue black party and they got it on turn five or whatever and were Full able to party? just blow me. Yeah. Oh wow. Now I'm not saying that happens all the time, but the point is that it is cape like it, the format supports it. You can have a party deck in yeah. almost any any of the colors, 
and green being tertiary and also just good for the MDFCs in general, the ability to fetch lands up and such, you can kind of splash that. You can splash green in almost any deck and have it work for you. I just I just think that this is an this is a format where you want to be looking at your macro archetype as opposed to the colors you're drafting as frequently. Now obviously you still need to put a deck together that you can play. You don't want to play five color in every every single draft, but I think overall if you are looking at the archetypes, you're going to find yourself in certain colors because certain colors are heavier in those archetypes than other colors, but you don't have to nitpick the the two color archetype thing that we're used to. Yeah, no, I, I like this takeaway. I was wondering before the whole like format started, I was thinking, well, hold on. Black and white, it's clearly trying to do the cleric thing, right? But then I remember that angel, Emeria War Leader, something like that. I forget what it's called. The captain? Uh, it's the uh, Mary Captain. Yeah, it's uh, something like that. I haven't drafted it personally. It's a uh, uncommon three and a white for a 1-1 flying vigilance. And it comes in with a 1-1 counter for each creature in your party. And it itself is a warrior. So I was thinking, wait a minute, won't black and white often just have a good mix of creature types? Like there's going to be clerics and rogues and warriors and maybe a wizard even. What are the odds that I get enough clerics to make it a tribal deck? Won't there be a tension between cleric, tribal, and uh, party? Can't any color pair be a party deck since they're spread so well across all these colors? And I think we are kind of seeing that. So, for example, the black-white clerics deck might not necessarily want that angel, whereas another black-white deck might snap it up. So you could have two black-white drafters, maybe even just a few seats away, that draft entirely different decks. And I think that is really cool. Exactly. And that's what I'm getting at with this. You don't really have to stick to color specifically because every color has or you don't have to be i guess you don't have to be worried about colors so much in this format because every color has cards that fit multiple archetypes so even if you're drafting the same color like you said a few seats away there's a chance it's not always going to go your way but there's a chance that you're both in different decks even though you're drafting the same colors so what have been some of your favorite archetypes to play so far honestly i've been i've been digging the blue green kicker deck the ability to ramp card ramp out lands quickly and then also have like cards like the stomper and you know maybe splashing like a pyroclastic healing or something to bounce yeah. those mdfcs back and get them in later get the value off of them later in the game it's really powerful the kicker effects are all pretty good so i've been mm-hmm. loving that deck and even when you don't have like the risen riptide payoffs you can still make it work so i've been liking that rogues is really good i'm a big fan of that and the party decks are just so much better they're so much more consistent than i expected yeah, they're fun. I had a feeling, remember, I, I was thinking back to uh, in, in a previous episode, I mentioned something about Ascend. And I was like, remember how Ascend, we, we thought it'd be tough. We thought you'd never Ascend. And everyone yep. was like, ah, these Ascend cards, like rate them pretty low. And it turned out you just Ascended every game and the best cards in the set were Ascend cards. Well, some of the best cards in this set can be party cards when you get that synergy going. So for example, like the, the Minotaur that can come down as a 5-4 haste on turn like four or five. Like that, that's, that's really strong. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are your what are your favorites? My personal favorite thing to do, as you may be able to guess by my deck that I drafted in the beginning, is just green landfall land shenanigans. I love land value. I'm I'm all about it. Returning lands to your hand, returning DFCs to your hand, then casting them, and then having like a Balagad recovery to return a, a kill spell or a creature that you already did, and then return another kicker thing with a sproutling. It's so good. So much grinding value town in action. I, I love it. And I, I will admit, I did draft a red-white warriors deck, but I didn't really get there on the equipment theme. Uh, I don't think I had the uh, enough equipment to to really get there, even though I had some of the uh, the core that give double strike. It I'd like to try that one again in the future. But yeah, actually, right now I'm on the land. I'm a little surprised. That's something I, I hadn't really thought about when we were doing the show notes. But the equipment side of this format has been a little lackluster, even though they all equip themselves. I thought they were going to be a way bigger presence than they have been, and maybe it's just been my small sample size, but I haven't really run into them too much. The uh, the red one that gives plus two plus zero oh has been good, and obviously the, the black-red one is good as well when the party deck comes together, but um, otherwise, you know, I haven't really seen them be all that outstanding. Mm-hmm. I will say the black-red one feels great when you're playing with it. I had a chance to draft that a few times. And uh, I'm still looking forward to playing uh, Maul of the Skyclaves. I got absolutely bashed by by a Skyclave deck. Yeah, that's a sick card. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, the other one one other archetype that I didn't mention is Clerics. Uh, You did mention it briefly, but Clerics is also, I think, actually one of the most, maybe it's not underrated now at the time of this recording, but I think it was one of the most underrated uh, archetypes. And it's one of the, uh, dare I say, one of the easiest to put together. And also one of the most powerful when it comes together. My first draft in this format was a black white clerics deck, and I had the uh, the one four that 
heal that gains you life whenever you play a creature and then also the uh i think the the four mana card or three mana card that uh drains your opponent one whenever you gain life so it was doing that whole cycle of things it gets really grindy yeah. really fast and then it has the ability to uh also gets a little bit of the party shenanigans going on if you want to uh go that route and uh sign of the swarm is also very very good in that deck so big fan of it that turns one. out uh if you take every card that says gain life or lose life on it and put them all in a deck you will kill your opponents with it somehow yeah i didn't it didn't see that coming but yeah it does work <laughs> <laughs> who would have thunk Okay, yeah, so anyway. we, we've talked MDFCs, we've talked archetypes. Let's get on to the actual gameplay of the format. How does this how does this format feel to play? So it's about what I expected. It's not super aggressive, uh, and it's not super late game. It is kind of a resource battle where uh, a lot of the games end up feeling mid-rangey, even if someone has an aggressive start. You end up using everything uh, in one way or another. Now, sometimes the, the games can spiral a little bit in best of one, I've noticed. Um, especially when one player goes like a Coom Hellhound into two drop, three drop. We've started to see this shift towards playable one drops in the past few sets. It's not like, uh, I don't know, like the, the past M21 where we had just nonsense happening on turn one, but uh, this isn't an anointed chorister or anything. But there's a few playable one drops in the set. Uh, ones that contribute to party are I found to be especially powerful. So sometimes your opponent or and you can start getting down, just curve out one, two, three, removal spell and Finish the game quickly, especially with Landfall. Uh, that makes for a powerful opening start. Pump your creatures by 2-2. Two, two. But I've found that most decks are able to stabilize. There's a lot of bounce in this format, a lot of cheap kill spells. So I've found the games to be pretty fun and engaging overall. Yeah, I agree. I haven't really run into any super aggressive decks. And like you said, the aggressive decks I have run into, I've been able to stabilize against, or they've been able to stabilize against me. Um, it tends to get on toward the mid-rangey side of things. I haven't seen any, like, dedicated control decks which tend to not really exist in limited all that often anyway but seems like this is very heavily planted in the in the mid-range section of that whole trifecta mm -hmm. yeah even consider um Amonkhet remastered where you had these kind of late game control payoffs like approach to the second sun or uh overwhelming splendor god pharaoh's stuff like uh, things that really paid you off for going into the late game in in this case we see stuff like that but what are the biggest cards in the set Kazandu Stomper, right? Basically, uh, yeah. Things that let you get back other smaller things and use them again. There's no super over-the-top thing except maybe Pylath, I guess. Uh, but even that goes wide with creatures and is still relatively easy to kill with most of the, the removal in the format. But maybe it takes a creature or two to smack in first. But yeah, I think this is a very interestingly designed format. And that the late game is more card-advantage-oriented card advantage than, uh, say windmill slam payoff oriented definitely and actually i experienced this firsthand today actually with a deck that i'm running at the moment it kind of wanted to be a rogue kicker deck but that didn't quite get there and i ended up cutting most of the blue so it's kind of a green black recur deck of sorts and it runs two of the sproutlings mm -hmm. and two of the uh what's the name of that card blood bonding or the the one mana card with kicker that gets one or yeah two the, the back. regrowth yeah yeah so it runs two of the sproutings and then that and like maybe one or two other kicker cards and so you just run you just run your your creatures into your opponent's board they kill everything off and then you just get them all back and then you get the card back that gets them all back and you just recur mm -hmm. that over and over again it's it's wonderful yeah sounds fun okay so there's been a little bit of talk regarding best of one versus best of three i don't think there's any real discussion about whether best of three or best of one is better overall most people who have ever played magic prior to the the online era we're into now prefer best of three but that said there has been some actual math done on the hand uh smoothing algorithm that magic uh, arena has and um, the folks over at 17 lands did some math on this and it's interesting because it seems like the more modal dfcs you have in your deck in best of one the higher your opening hand variance is with lands Mm -hmm. which is so, kind of wild because they they mentioned that they are taking into account both the the non-land and the land side for modal dfcs when when the hand smoothing algorithm is being discussed but it's weird to see that there's a difference between best of one and best of three like there's a clear difference between best of one and best of three as far as variance is concerned based on the number of mdfcs you have so just to be clear the hand smoothing algorithm uh let me see if i can get this right so arena it kind of draws you two opening hands, and then it looks to see which hand has a ratio of lands to spells that's closest to your decks. 
and then it gives you that hand. Is that correct? That is the gist of what we've been told. They've been keeping the actual details of the algorithm pretty close to their chest. I assume it's some kind of trade secret that they don't really want to share. Hmm. So they haven't released anything official on how it works, but that is the best guess slash piecemeal information put together type thing that we have. Yeah, it, it essentially draws two hands, picks the better of the two for your deck. So it guarantees, okay, guarantee is strong. It tries to guarantee that you have two to three lands in your opener no matter what. Now, you only see one of those hands, right? It presents you with the one that it selects for you, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the way it works. And it's interesting because they seem to have messed something up between best of one and best of three. I don't know why there would be a difference between the two, but best of three has far less variance compared to best of one when it comes to MDFCs being in your deck. Really interesting. Uh, I don't know exactly how I want that to impact my deck building in best of one versus best of three. But Yeah, well, you get into the whole like best of one is naturally more aggressive because there are no sideboards. That kind of stuff also matters. And then in that case, tap lands are kind of worst. So there, there's a lot that goes into this. I'm not trying to come down on either side of it. I just figured we should present it to the audience uh, to make them aware of the situation. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to be getting back into this a little bit more later with some of our, our Discord questions. So uh, I think we can head on to our next little little point we wanted to make, which is so far, does this feel like a Prince or Pauper format? And uh, I love your answer <laughs> for this. <laughs> I typed up, it's more of a democratically elected nation state. Something where the the paupers kind of elect their ruler, the prince, by which I mean the commons seem to really power up the best rares and and, uh, uncommons, the bomb ones. For example, the kill spells, the the rares, there's like a cycle of rare uh, party cards in, in the colors that all seem to care about turning on once you have a full party. I think kind of it definitely leans towards pauper in that the commons are pretty high powered and uncommons are pretty high powered and they can definitely, you can definitely have a great deck made of just commons and uncommons that being said a lot of the rares are still pretty great i haven't gotten to play against uh, too many of the mythics uh, i'm still looking forward to playing against that dragon uh, I, I can't wait to see what that thing can do yeah i have not seen hit that hit the battlefield yet uh, knock on wood maybe i never will because uh, <laughs> yikes but i definitely think it leads towards popper but I-, I like that the paupers uh kind of elect the princes i like that the commons power up the uncommons and rares so the the better your commons are the better your rares get yeah i like the that presentation of it it's i would say it's it's a pauper format but you're you're definitely right there the the commons and uncommons don't just rule the format they they hold it up they're like the scaffolding for it and when you have good rares and mythics they're just made better by the rest of your deck which maybe could be said for most formats but the synergy is very real in this format, and a lot of the rares are built to capitalize on that synergy. Mm-hmm. So, so let's take a look at some of the uh, top commons and commons in each color, right? Uh, we, we went over some of these in our last episode, but let's see what we got right, what we got wrong. Yeah, so for white, Nahiri's Binding is probably just the best white common. That's what we came down on. I don't think either of us have really shifted that position. Yeah, the, the, there's been some other ones that have impressed me. Uh, the five mana angel has really gotten there. Yeah, that's true. But I think I oh. think Nahiri's Binding is still still number one. Oh yeah, definitely. So for blue, we originally said Bubble Snare. At this point, I'm kind of lower on Bubble Snare than I was. The fact that it leaves the creature behind is pretty massive. And I, this is actually knock on Nahiri's Binding as well, but I think Nahiri's mm-hmm. Binding was a bit higher than its second tier, like whatever was number two, than Bubble yeah. Snare was in its respective color. But leaving the the creature on the battlefield in this format is massive. There are a lot of cards that still care about party. You don't remove the creature that you're you're putting there, so the party cards stay good if they have the party members out. Mm-hmm. This just stops blockers and attackers, and Nahiri's Binding actually kills activated abilities, so that makes it slightly better, but I feel like Bubble Snare, Bubble Snare often just doesn't do enough, and you wish it was just like a Vanquish the Week or something instead. Yeah, there's a handful of ways to like sack stuff and, and fling stuff and get value from stuff in other ways. I actually had a play where I ended up using a fight spell on one of my bubble snared creatures because that way they, their opponent would have to remove it again to be able to blow me out uh, because they bubble snared my 5-5. Five five and I was like, all right, I'm still just going to use this thing to do whatever I can with it. Yeah, I, I like Into the Royal. I've also been pretty impressed with the Geyser Mage. That thing can provide some pretty significant tempo advantage. Yeah, I think Geyser Mage is a little too expensive for the tempo it provides. Into the Royal is just where I want to be as far as that's concerned. So I think I'm bumping Into the Royal up to number one. 
It's close because there isn't real removal in blue. You have Bubble Snare, yeah. you have Into the Royal, and you have Geyser Mage. Those are kind of the only removal effects in blue. But I think Into the Royal provides better tempo. It sets them back. At least then it it, it messes up their game plan, whereas Bubble Snare can often just be like, okay, I kind of don't care you put that on my creature. Classic uh, classic control player. And God forbid you interact with the board or create some sort of board presence. In <laughs> uh, black... I will say I'm down on uh, feed the swarm. Uh, at first, I was pretty, I was pretty dead set like best black common. But apparently, uh, this format you are able to pressure your opponent to the point where uh, feed the swarm can actually be a cost. So uh, losing five life can actually make a significant impact on the game. Uh, of course, it's still great in life gain deck if you're doing that anyway. But uh, I've actually been higher on deadly alliance. So this is the uh, party one that gets cheaper for each party member that you have. Sometimes this just costs two or three or four mana to kill a creature at instant speed. Yeah, I don't. I, when we were when we were originally putting the uh, the best commons together for last week's episode, uh, we talked a little bit between Deadly Alliance and Feed the Swarm. I was on a Deadly Alliance originally, but Ben kind of talked me off of it because of the the party setup, which admittedly I thought was going to be a lot harder to get together than than it has been. And yeah, I'm with you. Deadly Alliance has definitely jumped Feed the Swarm for me. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, red, royal eruption, uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, don't think anybody missed that one. Green, however, this one's interesting. Rabid Bite is a bit lower than I anticipated. I don't think the green decks necessarily care about the kill spells too much. They're kind of just affecting the board, starting to smack in with tramplers. Honestly, I, I have Scythe Cat, Draga Visionary, and Canopy Bailoth all pretty high. Yeah, all three of them are pretty impressive. I mean, the Bailoth is just gets out of hand quick. The Scythe Cat gets out of hand quick. The Visionary is good value. Rabid Bite's interesting because green doesn't have any one-sided removal besides it. It's kind of similar to blue in that in that sense. It only has the real like the one real source of removal. And you know, I think yeah, I think a lot of these cards are just better. I've seen I've seen some pretty weird shenanigans with like the one one for one with death touch and you just rabid bite whatever and it's just like okay I guess yeah you got me yeah but barring those situations I think I would rather have all three of those cards over the first rabid bite yeah it's kind of weird uh, I think part of it is because that this is like you mentioned earlier such a grindy format like maybe rabid biting their thing isn't always the best way to use your mana or a card because they might have a way to just bring it back for extra value. Uh, especially if they're going to kick that card and get back two creatures. Well, this doesn't really provide them that big of a tempo loss. So maybe having a like 10-9 territorial scythe cat on the board is just a better use of a card, right? Yeah, in most cases, I think it is. You're kind of, you're giving up the, okay, I have a big thing, now you can't block, is is kind of the idea with some of these creatures. Bailoth doesn't quite do that well, but it attacks super well, so you're forcing them to try to figure out how they're going to block. The visionary gets you deeper in your deck, and leaves a body behind and the rabid bite is like also i think i think one thing that's a knock for rabid bite is like we talked about earlier like what's the biggest thing you have a stomper that comes down on turn six maybe Mm -hmm. you know a lot of these effects these rabid bite effects are really really powerful when there are big things that can just eat everything and there aren't that many of them in this uh, format yeah weirdly enough for zendikar i think the average creature size is a little lower than usual Except uh, unless you're playing Cherix, the Raging Isle, in which case that thing is thick. Dude, but. still haven't drafted that card. I'm kind of salty <laughs> about it. I need to build that deck. Anyway, let's get on to our second topic. Uh, we got some listener questions. So Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, typically um, we're going to try to get one, at least one question a week um, from the Discord to just kind of spice up some of our segments here, bolster what we're doing in every episode. Uh, this time around, because it's our first time doing this, we grabbed a few questions and we're going to just be trying to do this more frequently and hopefully we'll even get enough that we can do a full Q&A episode at some point. But for now, this is kind of the 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 pace we're hoping to keep up with. So first up, user Turbo Ninja asks, what platforms do we play on, MTGO or Arena, and do we go infinite in draft? What's our method? And is there one pl- platform that's best for that? Right. So I mostly play on Arena. Uh, however, as I mentioned, my PC is trash, so I need to get a new one. Uh, it's kind of this weird tension where Arena is great interface. I love it. It's fun. It's flashy. It's cute. Whatever. But my PC can't handle it. Whereas MTGO, uh, it's totally fine. However, I'm a bit newer to MTGO. I've only been using it for like a year. And I'll go on there if there's like a vintage cube or something or if I want to play whatever weird like Supreme draft format is going on right now. But uh, 
it's really hard to learn the interface. And I will admit I have lost games because I F6'd when I didn't mean to. <laughs> so I don't know. I think my solution to this is I'm just going to get a better PC. But yeah. uh, as for going infinite, I usually don't go infinite immediately in a new format. Sometimes I will just start messing around. I'll take cards because I want to try them out. And I think it's totally okay to know that you're not going to win all those games because when you're trying new cards, sometimes you hit, sometimes you miss. That being said, I, I try to like focus on going infinite by around halfway through a draft format. And I'm permanently infinite in historic. Uh, so when whenever I'm a little low on gold in the beginning of a draft, I just fill in with historic. How about you? Yeah, I, I kind of do the same. As far as the platform I play on, I'm almost exclusively arena. And by that, I mean, I think I played MTGO once in the last like three years, maybe. <laughs> um Mostly because I have found it easier. This sounds very counterintuitive and most people are going to flame me for this, but it, it, I find it kind of easier to go infinite on Arena. I also mm. like, I'm a, I'm a big like proponent of the fancy graphics. I just, if the game doesn't look good or feel good, I don't want to play it in general. Uh, there is that learning curve, but there are ways around that. And, you know, you can re-keybind things and uh, do that sort of thing if that's really a big uh, stopping point for you. And if you haven't gotten on NTGO yet, there's a pretty favorable like beginner package for it as well. You can resell your cards though, which is really nice. You can buy exactly the cards you want for like constructed formats. You can rent cards now. So that's really, really enticing. Mm -hmm. I typically go infinite in draft to some degree, but I don't actually draft all that often compared to a lot of other uh, content creators. I think I get maybe a dozen. If I'm lucky, I get a dozen drafts in a given format, unless I'm pushing for like mythic or something. Mm-hmm. Um, which you better be you got six days left dude yeah i actually think i'm gonna have to do that in constructed to be honest i don't know mm-hmm. if i'm gonna make it i'm I'm almost plat so i don't uh, think I'm i gonna... hope you like omnath yeah well i found uh, a pretty spicy deck online that that is not omnath and apparently does quite well against it so maybe i'll be able to jam that up real fast to uh mm-hmm. quick mythic from like bronze or whatever i'm in interesting for those listening uh we're trying to get as many people on our discord as possible ourselves included uh, up for this qualifier weekend in October. Uh, I believe I'm qualified from the last one, uh, but I'll probably try to hit Mythic in Zendikar in the next week or so, just in case. Yeah. So yeah, I think that answers that one for me. I guess also one thing, one quick note, if you're trying to play best of three, MTGO is just better value. Right now, Arena is really, really hard on the best of three circuit. Like traditional draft is really difficult to get actual rewards out of. You need to almost go, you need to almost trophy in order to actually get anything out past mm-hmm. your your initial investment and even break even, you need like almost full full wins. So yeah. if you're trying to to do best of three, I would say MCGO is your best bet. If you're if you care about rank and like trying to qualify for tournaments, Arena is the best at the moment. All right. So next up, OD402 asks: Any info or insight, comments or strategy as far as the actual drafting process in regards to the MDFCs? Do you feel like they're getting picked early by people and or have they helped for reading signals? like getting past a, a, in a pack two or with the same color that might help show if the color's open. I don't know exactly what I'm asking. Just curious if these lands have affected the actual draft process for you guys. Kind of like what we mentioned earlier, I think these are very big signals. And I think the fact, I, I think the extent to which they are signals is going to change over the course of this format. I think uh, as people start to realize that these are very, very good and can be splashed, uh, as that happens more, when you get past one, you'll think, oh, no one wants this. That is a very big signal. But as of right now, I think people are still kind of playing around with it, seeing what they can force into their deck and what they can't, right? Uh, I know I'm guilty of taking a few off-color DFCs and trying to fit them in and uh, with moderate success. So I think people are still taking them a bit lower than they should be right now. You just can't overstate how great it is to top deck a land in the late game that isn't a land. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's wild, honestly. Every content creator I've listened to, LR, Lords of Limited, uh, Limited Level Ups, all the pros, everybody has been high on MDFCs, and they're still getting past me late. Like, I will still pick them up, you know, like pick seven or whatever. That's absurd. They should not be going that late. I think you should be taking these super aggressively, almost better than any common. I, I would take them above every common and better than most uncommons and most rares even like they are just so so powerful and so flexible that you passing them is doing yourself a disservice even to a lesser extent but even off color ones because they're so splashable and they allow you to splash other cards as well mm-hmm. so i will say a slight caveat i wouldn't take them over every common there's a few removal spells i'd take over like a uh, drawry isle disruption 
But then again, I hate censors, so maybe I'm biased. Well, I, okay. I think, I think in general, like if you were just, if you just said, here's a pack, it has removal spell X and MDFC Y, like not filling those blanks in, I take the MDFC. I think there are some situations where you'll take uh, the removal spell over the MDFC, and it also depends on your your deck. But I think pack one, pick one. I'm just taking an MDFC first. Yeah, I'm kind of on that as well. Okay, so last question here we have before we wrap up this episode is Rob dies at the end asking, as longtime Magic players, does it bother you that the majority of Magic games being played now are likely best of one instead of best of three? Do you think we'll have any long-term shifts in what happens in person as a result of how we've gotten used to playing digitally? You know, honestly, Rob, I think this is kind of sad. I think the best of three is what made Magic magic to some degree, uh, to a large degree even. And moving to this best of one sort of style where you're not getting sideboards, especially when they're still designing cards that are sideboard cards, mm. is really kind of just, it grinds against itself. And I, I think it it doesn't, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Like I want the game to be the game and I'm not one of those types of players who needs it to be like 1990s magic. I like the way they've, I like, generally, I like the direction they've taken the game. I like the new sets that have been coming out. I like the risks they're taking. But I think in general, you need to keep best of three involved with magic in order for it to stay magic as we know it. And it's kind of sad that it's switching to best of one. It does make things faster. So it's nice. You get more games in, but you still like best of three. You're still playing the three games, I guess. Like, eh, I don't know. I think they, I, I think they should keep it. As far as that second part, do I think we'll have any long-term shifts in what happens in person? Probably not, except that I think there will be less people playing in person in general. Mm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, the digital shift hurts. I, I miss driving to my local game store. I miss the bar and grill next door where I'd go get a drink and a sandwich in between rounds. And and uh, like midnight pre-releases, just the, the air of excitement when everyone's opening new cards and there's just random packs everywhere. I like that feeling. It's fun and it, it's a good memory for me. We've, we've done how many midnight pre-releases together? Most of the remember ones that, that I've done have been with you, yeah. Remember that one I I, uh, I split for uh, split for the win where I had two Gold Knight Castigators in my deck? That's one of my favorite moments in Magic. Yeah, Shadows of the Shad, yeah. Yeah, and that's just not really happening anymore. So I will say, I think when we go back to in-person, which I am looking forward to once it's safe, I think there's going to be less handshakes because uh, people <laughs> don't really do that anymore. And uh, I don't know. I, I hope we're able to return to a best of three tournament structure pretty effectively. Uh, I, I, I just hope there's no organized shift towards best of one, especially in in paper tournament settings. Yeah. Mostly because, I mean, my modern deck, I already blinged out my sideboards. I'm not getting rid of those. Right, I, I'm yeah. not suggesting that there's going to be a, a drastic shift, but I don't know. I, I think... Times are changing and we might start to see different tournaments as a result. You know, that's and, something uh, I didn't really consider was the uh, the camaraderie that we lose playing digitally. You know, oh, yeah, like totally. you don't get to talk to the people you're playing with. You don't get to talk with your friends who you brought to the event. Like for those like, you know, for the listeners, Ben and I have been friends for ages. Um, mm -hmm. We've I, I got him into magic. We've been playing magic ever since together. We talk about it constantly. We one of our favorite things to do together, like as just as friends is to go to GPs in our areas. Like it's it's a lot of fun to bring people. And Ben's brought a few other friends into like midnight pre-releases and stuff. So we've been both getting new people into the game. Like that is one of the the core functionalities I think magic has behind it that a lot of the other games don't like Hearthstone and things like that because mm -hmm. you don't get the chance to play in person with people. Yeah, and it, it is sad. I miss staring down my opponent with a, a poker face as I jam my 2-2 two -two into their 4-4. Four -four. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's sad, but I hope someday things return back to a sense of normalcy where we're able to do all those things again and, and play in person again. I will say that uh, I'm really loving the, the Discord because I feel I'm starting to feel that spark of community again that I missed. Like when you walk into a local game store and you say hi to all your friends from like the previous week, maybe you don't know all of them that well, but you know you're all there because you care about something that, that you share, right? It's a shared experience. It's what humanity is all about. So um, if you're feeling alone or you just want to talk to magic, talk to people about magic, maybe you haven't in a while, hop on the Discord. Uh, it's a very friendly place. We'll say hi. To kind of jump back to the question, as for best of one versus best of three, I, I, you know me, I like my extreme case analysis. Mm -hmm. So um, 
let's say you have a a five mana five one flyer in a theoretical limited format. Awesome and best of one, kind of trash and best of three. Right. Uh, once you sideboard in any of the like flyer kill spells or ping effects or or fight effects, it goes from pretty awesome to pretty bad. But in best of one, it just gets run over. So I think that sometimes if we start to shift towards gameplay that doesn't reflect the design, like you mentioned, there's a friction almost between what the cards are meant to do and then what they're actually doing. So I would prefer to see things stick with best of three, but maybe that doesn't provide as as entertaining streaming numbers, or maybe uh, it's better for people to get more games in, or maybe people spend more gems on best of one. I don't know what the the corporate hand is in all this, but uh, I would like to see things go back to best of three, but at risk of sounding like a, like a, like magic boomer. I, I, I miss the days when it was a uh, thir- 30 black lotuses and 30 pack rats. That, that's a magic deck. Oh gosh. <laughs> All right, everybody. That does it for us this week. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Feel free to hit up that discord. Like I said, the link is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page at draft pod. If you're interested in supporting the show or giving back in any way, check out the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Um, if you want to contact us directly, you can do that at draftchaffpod at gmail.com, or you can contact me at Rannick Alfredian or Ben at Betafish1. All of those will be in the episode description as well. Or just join the Discord, because we're there pretty much constantly, so that's a great way to get in contact with us as well. That'll do it for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. See you, everyone. Oh man, I've been wait- I've been looking forward to this sign off for so long. All right, so you know me, I like historic. Sometimes I take a break from draft, or I need to grind up some gems or, or gold. I usually play best of three historic, where I have my trusty mono green uh, Lanamore elf into steel leaf champion into Ronus into kill you. Uh, I love it, <laughs> and it's pretty effective. I've been sitting at a a nice uh, between like sixty six to seventy percent win rate with it uh, for the past several months. Yeah, that being that's, said, that's good. I got absolutely curb stomped by Tuck Tuck Rubble Fort. Uh, yeah, that's the O three that gives all your things haste and is a wall. Uh huh. Right? Uh huh. Yep. Okay. I would need, you like I to need, hear how? Yeah, yes, I would. <laughs> I I need some explanation here. So I'd like to shout out the magic user that played it. I, I meant to write down their name. I want to say it was Tyleman. Uh, I'm, the odds that they listen to this are, are slim, and the deck is probably available online somewhere. But if I they have seen. I think I've seen people talking about this deck. I have not seen deck lists though, so walk me through it. Okay, so it's essentially a turn four combo deck. I'm not going to call it twin, but it's kind of like twin. Everybody else has been calling it twin. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot like twin, all right. So uh, it starts off, uh, instead of twin, instead of a, you know, a literal four mana card, it's two two mana cards. You start off with uh, turn four, you play a Seagate Stormcaller. That's the new mythic. It's kind of like the reverse order Snapcaster Mage where it copies the next thing that you play this turn. Uh, then you cast Neoform on Seagate Stormcaller and you sack it as an additional cost. That, of course, uh, lets you go get a card from your library that uh, costs a bit greater than it and you put a 1-1 counter on it. That's it. We're ready for some stack nonsense? Okay. So you sacrifice the Seagate Stormcaller to Neoform. So you're yep. able to go get a 3-drop. Okay. Uh, Seagate Stormcaller copies Neoform. You no longer have to sack a creature, so it puts a second copy on the stack. Right. You're going to get two three drops. Uh, so you resolve one to get a dual caster mage, which is legal and historic. Oh gosh, that I can already see where this the is going. <laughs> copies the other Neoform on the stack. Copies the original. Then you so go you still get have two your, on the stack. Mm-hmm, you get your three other dual caster mages, yep. and boom, they all come in as uh, three threes because they get a counter on them. Okay, but then Next. that last one's still there's still a copy of Neoform on the stack, right? Because the last one uh-huh. is the battlefield. Okay, all right. Oh, we're we're not done. So uh, when you get that last one, you're back up to two triggers. So the original the original card of right. Neoform is still on the stack, and the copied one is still on the stack. So then you go get four glass pool mimics. That's the new blue DFC. It's a, a clone rogue. Copy the dual casters, which <laughs> copies Neoforms as well. Uh-huh. Yep. So it, you get four more, or however many you happen to have. If you have a few in hand, it, it shortens it a bit. So then you use the last copy to go get Tuck Tuck Rubble Fort to give them all haste. And then uh, the very last one, the original Neoform on the stack, you go get Combat Celebrant. Then you attack and have two attack phases with oh, I don't know fifteen power. <laughs> so Jeez, for my yeah. my poor little elf deck my my elf ball like ronus nonsense i was sitting there feeling pretty confident with my two removal spells and indestructible board 
But, uh, you know, there's some things that not even the tallest snake gods can <laughs> defeat in combat. Look, I think what I'm getting out of this is that Ronus is no match for Tuk Tuk. <laughs> uh, I don't want to make that comparison, but I will say that, that Tuk Tuk Rubble Fort may be a bit more playable than I gave it credit for. This sounds like my kind of deck, though. I'm actually super stoked to try to put this together and, and jam some games with it. Yeah.